0: For those of you who have ever attended an O oh Baby production showcase, you'll know we like to open the show with a bang. And this fifth season of Watch the Tease is no different. Today, I am honored and naturally very starstruck to welcome my first guest of season five, a legendary queen of burlesque, Immodesty Blaze. Welcome to the What's the Tea stage, modesty.
1: Oh, hello. I'm so delighted to be here and thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much. Just to kind of get where in the world we are, are you currently coming to us from Monaco?
1: I am indeed. Yes, sunny Monaco. Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world.
0: You're originally from Hertfordshire, England, where you previously worked in the film industry as a storyboard artist, then producing, and even went on to win an Evcom Award for directing 10 short films for the Nobel Prizes. It would seem always going swell in your chosen career path. So how then did Burlesque find you?
1: Burlesque definitely found me, not the other way around. I've always worked across many creative media and One of the things I used to do was to draw all the time and paint um, my fantasy women. And so immodesty was really a way to bring my drawings to life. So I was just really having fun creating stuff. And I guess when I auditioned for a pop video for a British band, uh, Goldfrap, and I got the part, and then I was seeing myself on MTV suddenly on rotation, on the daily, twirling my tassels. And I thought, okay, maybe I can be entertaining after all. And so that really was, yeah, the kickoff point.
0: That's quite something to go from a career path where you were sort of behind the scenes. Has been in front of the camera then something that you had toyed with at various stages of your life?
1: Never, no. I'm actually quite introvert, but there was something about being on stage that is amazing for introverts because we're really in our own space (laughs) and we've rehearsed and no one's kind of coming into our space but we have this dialogue with an audience so everyone assumes that you have to be an extrovert to get on stage actually it's an introvert's dream. (laughs) It's
0: fairly common knowledge that burlesque has roots in Britain. As a self-taught entertainer how did you go about honing your craft of the tees and envision continuing the tradition of great British burlesques when establishing Immodesty Blaze?
1: Ooh, yeah, you're so right that it's such a, a, a rich British tradition. What really interested me was like a kind of reclaiming of the old territory, the theatres where burlesque had really had wilderness years after the 60s, 70s. Mm. And so, for instance, I brought it back to the infamous Windmill Club, um, which was the home of the Tableau Vivant. It didn't close during the Blitz. Such a a rich history there. I did the West End for five months, uh, which is, for anyone who doesn't know the UK, that's like Broadway. I did music halls. So, for example, the historic Wilton's Music Hall and Along the way, I had a mentor, Basil, who he had been in an original burlesque and drag troupe around Europe in the 60s, and they called themselves lay boys. Mm-hmm. And um, he was also an incredible tap dancer, uh, variety act. And he really mentored me in the old traditions and the like the old ways of moving, of placing our hands, what what lighting to ask for, stagecraft, music choices. He also <laughs> he also really uh, kind of handed down the importance of camp in burlesque. So, um, you know, that tradition of the very tongue in cheek and uh, the way that we exaggerate things. So I could really bring of uh, some of his old and really authentic knowledge forwards. Oh, wow. Do you know what's really interesting about working with him was that because he had a drag act where he had really studied Marlena. Dietrich and he 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 worked in a replica of her uh, white swan feather gown and where he had studied every movement of her and her mimic her face and everything it was almost like he was teaching me parts of femininity (laughs) that me as a woman I was just like wow this this is such rich learning you know (laughs) and um you know we're 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 all in drag on stage um and, and and it was it was such a a sort of beautiful handing on of of experience, really. I find that the relationship between
0: drag, they take all the stereotypes of feminism and then amp it up, you know, with a lot of volume. But then, like, I find it very interesting how cis female identifying people sort of doing something like burlesque, which is also the amped up version of female tropes in a way, feel sort of yeah. um, a little bit displaced in our own femininity when doing something like that.
1: Sure, because, you know, we literally can't walk to the supermarket in that way, you know. Yeah. <laughs> There's a way that we, we like you say, know when to turn the volume up. Mm-hmm. And, and also when maybe not turn the volume up, you know.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes I also wonder if it's like because, you know, we live in a man's world. Yes, it's changing, but we have also had to adapt ourselves to certain sort of masculine tropes in order oh, totally. to become, you know, the modern woman.
1: Yeah. And in fact, not just around kind of this, yeah, the, the, the coming from the masculine side, but also how many people have I heard? Oh, you're just too intimidating. I'm mm. like, yeah, I'm just standing here. I'm just standing here. And I, I think it, I think it was Grace Jones who said, I'm not intimidating, you're intimidated. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, something that I think women, there's something around us, don't be too much, you know. And it's like, I can't look after, I can't take care of what for you is too much because it's different for everyone. You know, I can just stand in a room and not say anything and somebody's going to find it intimidating, you know. But yeah. (laughs)
0: Indeed. (laughs) So, when you first began performing in 1999, you continued to work in film. Having first-hand knowledge of the demanding nature of the industry myself, um, I salute you in working both those jobs simultaneously. But I'd like to (laughs) know, (laughs) what was the catalyst behind your decision to pursue Burlesque full-time?
1: Okay, this is quite funny, actually. It Literally, because... I was getting so many bookings for burlesque. I just couldn't do both jobs. You know, I couldn't work all day and all night. And I actually chose burlesque full time purely because I just thought it was a flash in the pan. I thought, oh, you know, I'm young. If I don't do it now, I'll regret it. It's only going (laughs) to last for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, I had no idea. 20 years later, I would still be shaking my tail feather. And uh, what I can say is, had I thought that, it would continue more than two years. I would definitely have chosen a better stage name. (laughs) (laughs) But Imadesty Blaze has become iconic because you have made her so. Also,
0: I think it's hilarious that you said that, because there's a wonderful little kind of vox pop moment um, of Mick Jagger, where in the early days of the Rolling Stones, uh, I think a, a journalist had asked him, uh, you know, like, how long do you think this is going to go on for? And he was just like, yeah, no, about two years. <laughs> Max, <laughs> he was like, if you can get two years out of it, he'd be stoked. And I'm like, wow, this man's <laughs> touring the world at, like, in his 70s. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so interesting, hey? Like, sometimes your destiny also, like, says, well, this wave is going to be longer than you think.
1: Yeah, we, well, we always say plan for failure. And then we so rarely plan for success. So... <laughs> But yeah, I would have I would I would have chosen a stage name that actually fits on a flyer. It's a nightmare <laughs> designing anything with such a long name and everyone spells it wrong and it's like, yeah. Plan oh. for success.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we are very glad that Immodesty Blaze has taken up space on all the play
1: balls for
0: <laughs> sure. So when developing the immodesty blaze burlesque persona, what inspired you about personalities like Raquel Welch, Divine and Liberace?
1: Yeah, Liberace, the showmanship, the campness, without a doubt. And again, what Basil, my mentor, had instilled in me was this, everything becomes so over the top that it becomes humorous and funny and very, very endearing Mm-hmm. And and you can charm an audience with campness, and and it's a very European way of being too. You know, um, great tradition of British, French, Italian campness. And there were other artists who I was inspired by. Uh, I don't know if you're f- familiar with Dalida, incredibly camp, wonderful artist. Uh, those uh, certain movie scenes of Marilyn, Sophia, Ava, again the the sort of. The knowing overplaying and the showmanship. And also, I found inspiration in opera because it had that same kind of uh, very dramatic pull. So, artists like Ima Sumac, mm-hmm. uh, Maria Callas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, that kind of very knowing, filling the stage with the drama of the moment, the costuming, uh, Ima's costumes were exceptional. And, you know, that whole package... Uh, really kind of unapologetic
0: Um, Like many folks, one of your first introductions to burlesque was watching the film Gypsy as a child with your mother Even if one has not viewed the film, many people are aware of the gimmick scene Did you know what your superpower gimmick was that you wanted to present on stage from the start?
1: Okay, this is a great question because (laughs) (laughs) wow yeah when i started i was like and this is how i got the the audition for for goldfrap was my tassel twirling skills and um and then it became like the late great uh, satan's angel she said uh being around in the 60s when she was performing oh god not another tassel twirler and really what i thought (laughs) yeah what i thought was a gimmick really it's like hey you know Chuck a penny and you'll find 30 tassel twirlers. And, yeah, I had signature props. And, again, I that's window dressing. Mm-hmm. So as you're asking that, what I thought was a gimmick at the time, if I'm looking back, actually what made me different or what my gimmick was was actually my body... And because you, cause you mm-hmm. just didn't see girls of my size on stage, and 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 what's crazy is I'm actually a really average size. I'm I'm curvy, but mm-hmm. um, I'm a pretty average size. But that was sadly shocking enough to just not be skinny. So I guess my gimmick, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad or sad or just a bit of a shame was actually just being myself. You know, and I could just. I don't know burst on stage and be all heels and hair and titties bouncing everywhere and you know mm-hmm. make the room shake with my hips and and just being a bit too much I guess my gimmick was not being perfect it's sad that it should be a gimmick you know <laughs>
0: You know, it's quite interesting to be able to look back
1: because I, I would agree
0: with that uh, just simply because of the time that you did come up. And when I think of some of the people that were your influences, like a Sophia Loren, the the kinds of people that were her sort of acting, um, her peers, she was also kind of a gimmick for a lot of productions. Um, right. You know, I think it's not entirely sad, like said in the way, like in the larger scheme of the world, um, right? Not giving everyone exactly. equal opportunity, but it's also amazing that when you do push past those sort of barriers and you do get are able to get over those hurdles, that in fact you're celebrated.
1: Yeah, and in fact, it it's kind of a barometer for where society was and where it is now because we have so much more representation of all kinds of uh body shapes now that we just didn't have back then so i i wonder if you know anyone who's new to the genre would be thinking what's she talking about but i don't (laughs) think people necessarily who are younger than me would understand how bad it was in the early 2000s you know just if you even had a you know, a roll of fat, it was like, oh, my God, that's insane. That's we just never seen that before, you know. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, while you whilst you were blazing that trail
0: in Europe and in Britain, you had across the pond uh, someone like Dirty Martini doing the same yes. thing, a similar thing around oh. the same
1: time. Oh, I mean, she's a force of nature. Her performance power is exceptional and she's always been such a great inspiration for me. You once said
0: the shtick is as important as the strip. Any advice for performers creating new acts on how to find the balance of these elements?
1: I suspect I was saying that as a reference to a whole show, that Mm. um, burlesque really is variety. So, For the whole show to be burlesque, it has to have some kind of comedic or or satirical element as a whole. But, you know, of course, there are speciality acts, circus skills, for example. They don't have to be comedic. Um, But I do believe in, again, it comes back to the power of camp. Um, So building something to a, if you can imagine something, go one step further and really, you know, How big can you imagine it to be Mm -hmm. over the top and make it amusingly charming and endearing to an audience that you can transport them somewhere?
0: I mean, at the same time, you are also notorious for having, I suppose it could be part of the shtick, having oversized props, you know, I'm referring (laughs) to your rocking horse, the telephone, powder (laughs) puffs. But yet you as the performer are the one that still stands out over and above these exceptionally large props on stage,
1: I oh, thank you for noticing that. Yeah, I mean, you have to wear the costume; it can't wear you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I think that really comes down to that space where you get to know. Look, this is what I, like I'm. I'm not a great pinup girl. I, I don't have doll-like features. I don't have the proportions. It's like other people do that so much better. It's knowing where. You know, this is for me, and this style is not for me, and it looks great on others, or it works for other people. It's like knowing what shows off your strongest points um, and really working with that. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for sharing that pearl with us.
0: You successfully reintroduced burlesque into mainstream West End, as we mentioned, as you mentioned earlier, in the early 2000s. And one of the productions was Immodesty Blaze and The Adventures of Walter. What drives you or drove you then in your efforts for burlesque to be recognized as a legitimate theatrical genre?
1: Oh, that was a subject very close to my heart actually, because (laughs) it used to really annoy me that there was like this real cultural snobbery, especially in the early days that it was somehow um, not a serious entertainment form. And, And also we had issues with the nudity in London, at least, Mm -hmm. like in certain towns, um, I'd have to write a report of what each act would be. And then it would have to go to the police department. And then sometimes they'd request a ticket to, in inverted commas, check what was happening on stage. Yeah, they, they, they really enjoyed the show, you know. But that aside... The idea that there was striptease involved. Mm -hmm. Um, So one example was um, at the Wilton's Music Hall. We had an official complaint from a very well-known actor who was a patron saying that we shouldn't be allowed to perform burlesque because that should be reserved for serious acting and opera. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's me thinking, hang on a minute, but Burlesque and Variety actually built this music hall. That's what it was built for. (laughs) And it's a form of entertainment that's bringing people joy. You know, he wouldn't have complained about a comedian or a pop act being on stage. Mm -hmm. So it really, really fired me up to just reclaim some of that original space. I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to get this in the opera house. And I did. And I'm going to put this in a palace. And I did. And I, I'm going to take it to a historic theatre. They want to, you know, they want to tell me this isn't proper, you know, or legitimate entertainment. I'll show them.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was
1: like, you know, huge music acts or artists. I was like, this still deserves to be alongside this. You know, it's beautiful. It's funny. And it's entertaining. So, yeah, it did, it did put a rocket up my butt to uh, prove them wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We built this city on tassel twirling. (laughs) As part of this mission, you also beat TV censorship by performing a full Showgirl striptease on ITV's The Paul O'Grady Show as well as on Italy's Dancing with the Stars. What was the response of these performances from the networks and the viewers?
1: Oh, I mean, it was fantastic. People just love burlesque. Um, I mean legal we're all over it of course they mm-hmm. would check every second uh you know my costume had to be checked before you know i had to sign disclaimers they don't want any kind of janet jackson wardrobe thing going on mm-hmm. um but the experience you know apart from having to jump through hoops i didn't mind cuz so i was like oh, that's fine mm-hmm. you know i get it and the experience was was massively positive and a funny story um, was I actually? I even did a, <laughs> I even did a strip tease on live radio.
0: <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> Which with like a webcam
1: or what, no webcam? No, but it was just hilarious. It was literally the present. It was on BBC Two, I think, mm-hmm. and the presenter was just commentating me doing a strip tease. and I just thought, oh, this is amazing. They've managed to burlesque a burlesque, and I, and I was like, okay, great. I can say I have a a face for radio now. It was just. <laughs> M- highly amusing
0: still trying <laughs> to process this uh burlesque on radio and you know right. with the advent of like how asmr is now a thing it got me thinking about burlesque asmr like striptease asmr like what is that mm. the sound of velcro you know and then like, yeah. do you imagine that that's what is it what is that corset zips <laughs> it could be quite interesting <sighs> You've described your journey in burlesque uh, and we have covered a little bit of this earlier as being a full figured woman in a skinny girl world and at times had received cutting reviews and commentary around your body. How Mm -hmm. did you find peace with your body and be able to shut those voices out?
1: Well, I mean, I already had peace with my body. And I think that's what people had a problem with. Well, the ones who did, the ones who wanted to, you know, write a snarky comment in a review. I think it was the fact I was not dissatisfied with my body, that I wasn't kind of hanging my head in shame. It was like, oh, how dare she be enjoying her body? Within that culture, what they didn't know was that my mother was anorexic and bulimic. I'd grown up around that. So I'd already done the work on that so i was claiming my right really to be happy in a healthy body without without really having to have to de- explain or or defend that and i had no idea that that should be so controversial you know and then in the meantime i've got a, mo- a mainstream model agency asking me if i'd consider gaining weight and 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 that way they could kind of push me as a plus size curve model and I think at that point, I understood look, it doesn't, I can be thin, fat, triangular, round, square. A wounded person is going to project their fears or their wounds onto someone else's body. And a wounded culture is going to do the same. Or that kind of culture will try to police our bodies or try and control our bodies from the outside, no matter what we look like, no, ma- no matter who we are. What meant that I shut the noise out? what noise there was because there was you know for anything that's negative there was also immensely positive stuff Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact among the fan mail that I used to receive like actual physical letters and emails and people would come to the stage door or after shows um, would be often women who would share that they had an eating disorder or that they had uh, illness cancer or Uh, women in a wheelchair who wanted to connect with me and have hope that, yes, it is possible to access a piece in our body. So there was something about whatever I was being on stage that a lot of women found they could connect with. And those sharings and those communications and words and conversations really, really touched me to my heart and they still inform the work that I I continue to do today, because what we want, I don't care about connecting with the press, I I care about connecting with my audience, and that's what touches me, and that's what I care about. Mm,
0: Beautiful, preach on. I believe that you were invited to take part in Exotic World by Dixie Evans herself, after performing at her 80th birthday party, which I I think you said it's also like her 79th birthday party. <laughs> yes! <laughs> yeah, she, she forgot when she was born. <laughs> <laughs> you then went on to win the Best Debut in 2006 and the following year became the first British performer to win the Exotic World title. Was there like a notable difference in Immodesty Blaze as a performer before and after this experience?
1: not in terms of me as a performer, but what I will say was the sense of community was incredibly uplifting. I mean, I made a ton more friends from being stateside and I just got to be inspired by all the performers because actually when you watch any entertainment form in another country, you just see all of their influences at play and, and, and their cultural references. And I think it's so important to check out other entertainment and other entertainers, sorry, Mm -hmm. from other cultures. And also to just go and watch and support your colleagues and, you know, celebrate them and be inspired. So the bigger change that I noticed was generally just a real beautiful
0: camaraderie. Uh, That's wonderful. And I mean, like, this was in 2007, 2006, so the world has mm. also changed since then as well. Mm. But one of the things that I think people sometimes get concerned when there's, like, large groups of women gathering, you know, that mm. there might be a little bit of infighting and jealousy and all that kind of stuff.
1: I mean, that exists in that exists in any industry, right? Mm-hmm. There's always going to be people who might, connecting with the dark side you know Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily exclusive to entertainment I think Mm -hmm. that exists in pretty much any industry Mm -hmm. and it's like look you're going to find what you look for if you're looking for that you'll find it and if you just don't engage with it you're going to have the most incredible experience.
0: Amazing, and you had the most incredible experience. (laughs) So post-becoming Miss Exotic World, you became a best-selling author after publishing your novels Tease in 2009 and Ambition in 2010. Is the heroine of your debut novel Tiger Star and some of the events in this book based (laughs) on yourself and your experiences in the modern burlesque world? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't have a sister who happens to be my mother. Um, <laughs> so, um, no, I mean, I really created like an outrageous plot line. Mm-hmm. And then all of the detail is really drawn from shows I've been in or things I've seen or um, spending time in Vegas, I mean, the stories I pulled in were even from the author David Simon, who wrote The Wire. Mm-hmm. He gave me a lot of history about Burlesque and blaze Star and Baltimore. And, you know, I really pulled in so many interviews with people who were there the first time round. you know. So it's just a, a a composite of many wild and wonderful stories.
0: Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if it was an outlet um, for what happens in Vegas doesn't necessarily stay in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when, when people talk about like going to the goat farm and their experiences at Exotic World and et cetera, and especially in the burlesque world. So I was just wondering if this was possibly an outlet for you to be able to to say those stories without naming names.
1: Oh, I mean, some yeah, of course, there were some of the things that I did see with my own eyes of course but um what was very funny was that mainly when I would submit a chapter to my editor and she would edit out certain stories or passages and she'd say oh no you're just really stretching the realms of like reality here that just sounds too unbelievable she'd always take out the real stories <laughs> <laughs> and that's where you go yep <laughs>
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That
1: was the true one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wonderful. As a writer, you continued on and also reviewed hotels for the Mr. and Mrs. Smith Travel Club. What are you looking for in a place to stay as a traveling showgirl? Like what is your basic package and then what would be the deluxe package?
1: I, I just look for... She can boutique, and I, and I think that's always possible to find on whatever budget. The thing that really grinds my gears, and weirdly, I find this, like the more expensive the hotel, The worse, the lighting, like the dimmer the lighting. I'm sure they're thinking, look, this is just super flattering. And I'm like, I need to see what I'm doing. I don't travel light. I've got so much stuff. I need good lighting. Mm -hmm. So that really is for me. Give me space and good lighting and I'm good. I'm good to go.
0: Right. Interesting. I mean, also, if you are performing, you need the lighting for, yeah, for putting on makeup, especially, you know, make sure you're not like overdoing it
1: or under. Well, yeah, I mean, we could go into the whole thing about the worst dressing rooms I've ever had. You know, we're expected to come out looking like a million bucks and you look like the dressing room. And when we look at the dressing room we just came out of, it's like, how did I turn that into something, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> In 2009, you also produced the feature-length docu-movie Burlesque Undressed. Looking back, how would your treatments of the film differ
1: if you were to make the sequel today? Oh, I mean, everything. I mean, I had insane amounts of constraints I mean I won't go into the reasons that take an hour but um you know production team issues um limitations you know there was a whole other shoots worth of footage that couldn't be used you know it amazes me that we managed to get it made so one of my you know people always say what's the best advice you ever received and I always say accommodate but never compromise and yet that was one project where I really feel like I compromised and so it would be an entirely different film today and I didn't take my own advice but I am still proud of what we managed to produce even with all of those constraints and it's still being run on Sky Arts 10 years later it's done really well it's been in the top ratings of their documentaries of all time so you know sometimes you stand back and you go look the, the project didn't finish how I'd envisaged it but it's so hard to sell any pitch for any project and it's a feat in itself to get anything made and so for artists who are you know pushing through on a project you know things don't have to be exactly as you imagine for them to still have great value and have an impact and do really well and you know we just have to know there are some times we go look I finished it, let it go. And if I have the opportunity in the future, I know exactly how I would do it better.
0: You know, that can be used in various avenues of one's life in general. Yeah. I think that that's such great advice. And I think that goes for uh, creating acts as well, you know, because the creative process is ever-changing and it depends on like what stage you're going to, what town you're going to be performing in, you know, who the audience is. Sometimes it does kind of have a bit of say as to what it is that actually ends up on stage part of that would be you know when you said compromise did you feel that at least you got the the core of the values of what you wanted to put out there out there
1: i mean yes i told the story of of burlesque and i i included performers who I loved and admired and managed to capture some of the legends who have now very sadly passed on. And I'm just Mm -hmm. delighted that I was able to capture that moment in time. And, you know, it's sad because I knew what was available and what it could have been. But also I'm glad that I captured what I did. And it would have been even sadder had I not pushed forwards and gone, okay, it can't be what I wanted, Mm -hmm. but I'm still proud of it. And, you know, I think the heart is still there.
0: Amazing. Well done for that. How did the knee injury you experienced, which kept you from performing for several months, spur you on your journey in therapeutic coaching?
1: Uh, Thank you for asking me this, because it was such, you know what, when everyone says when you fall down and you got to get back on the horse. And that really was a moment where I was like, damn it, I had to cancel a European tour which was heartbreaking and I'd worked so hard on it and um, I couldn't uh, get on stage for six months and physio didn't really work. And so I thought it was a curse at the time. And then as I look back, I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm so glad that that happened. I mean, it really took me down the rabbit hole of mind-body healing, mind-body connection. And, you know, a lot of the time when we're on stage, we have to disconnect from our bodies so that we can be in the moment. We shut everything out so that we can perform exactly, you know, as we wish to. Sometimes that means, you know, I'm not listening to my body. I don't listen to, you know, how tight that course it is or whatever. Yeah, it really led me back to reconnecting with my body. It led me to begin professional trainings and I certified first off in eating psychology and then i went on to train for the next six years in various therapeutic approaches uh trauma-informed um approaches and so fast forward to today and um especially then throughout the lockdown i evolved my body compassion approach um so i work with people for body image uh recovery which is very very close to my heart throughout Mm -hmm. my journey on stage Um, really helping to help people to guide them into healing and transforming their relationships with their body. You know, it's, as I say, when I was talking about the kind of people like the fans who would come backstage or send me letters who um, had a deeply uncomfortable relationship with their body and, you know, would share with me how they really yearned to find some peace in their body. I wanted to connect with them that went in a deeper way than just, you know, flying the flag on stage or flying a feather. I I really created body compassion as I guess like my love letter to everyone who wants to feel at home in their skin you know to help them change their self-dialogue challenge their inner critic you know transform how they can interact with the world we all have an audience whether that's daily life or whatever it is you know Mm -hmm. and when we're it makes us scared to express our desires or who we really are or accept who we really are. If we're kind of carrying this fear in our bodies and, you know, every person deserves to connect with their home in their body and, the, you know, their essence, who they are. No one deserves to feel shame around that, you know, no matter what's being said around them or happening in the world around them, it's that that's all right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I created the body compassion approach really over years, um, seeing with my own eyes, From my childhood experiences of anorexia, bulimia, um, through what I saw from the stage, um, in in the press, in my audiences, what's really been happening under the surface in our culture.
0: So Modesty, where are you mostly putting your energy these days? Is it more sort of towards your body compassion work or does burlesque still kind of take up quite a bit of your time?
1: I'm absolutely putting energy into growing and and sharing body compassion because it's just so important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, However, what I will add to that is that I do make sure I put my energy into continuing to perform for a very special reason because I really, really do want to be actively participating in the dialogue around age. I'm a woman, I'm approaching 50, and I am very, very willing to contribute to that dialogue and modeling how we can channel those natural changes of age Mm -hmm. especially the stigma around women aging but you know normalizing change it's human you know it's a privilege to age so you know continuing to perform you know again, how we can inhabit that space unapologetically. So my work is far from done as far as goes continuing to keep the feathers, you know?
0: (laughs) Oh, yes. You have rightly been credited as a figurehead of the 21st century burlesque renaissance in Europe. And from the onset, you carved out a space for yourself in a genre still taking shape in the modern world and created productions steeped in fantasy, ultra-glamour. And escapism. 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 Escapism? escapism? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> English eludes me. <laughs> 20 years on and in the game, what and who excites you about the art form and its future?
1: Do you know what? Actually, um, funnily enough, fi- you know, finding the positive and the negative of everything. Mm-hmm. During COVID, there were some amazing... Creative stuff that came out of that. I mean, if I find an, an example, great performer who I love, Violet Chachki, who did an mm-hmm. incredible live stream during lockdown, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of inventive ways with all kinds of performers just bringing the genre to people's homes under the circumstances that they were given through different media, you know. So I think it's intriguing as technology brings us kind of more into virtual worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, how people are going to work with that. I mean, I love how burlesque really, over 20 years, has married with cabaret, variety, circus, immersive theatre, performance art, you know, all the doors really are open and there's stage space that, you know, we could never have imagined 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I I think, especially for the younger performers who have a better grip of technological blank canvas that we have, it's immensely exciting. and. On the flip side, the OGs are getting older, <laughs> like me, you know. I'm excited to see older performers continuing to be in that stage space. You know, like, I think about how Mae West continued to the age she did to her 80s and mm-hmm. Marlene Dietrich and Ima Sumac, you know. That excites me. You know, some of the finest performances that I've been lucky to witness from the wings. James Brown, in his 70s, six months before he died, Bertha Kit, six months before she passed, you know, when they get to that age and their craft just becomes, well, it's like gold. It's just mesmerizing to watch. So I'm actually excited by both sides of the creative spectrum on that.
0: Well, Imadisdi, you've had such an illustrious career to date, and I don't have nearly enough time to cover all of it. So what I'd like to ask is if you could just enlighten us as to what you have coming up that you would like us to pay particular attention to.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, the obvious place to to hop on over to my website and pop yourself on the mailing list for body compassion if that's something that interests your audience. You know, I've always advocated for body acceptance and really challenging a cultural dialogue towards, as I say, connection, connection and compassion and advocacy. I'd like to think that it's what I've done with Burlesque right from the start, you know, reclaiming its space as a genre on stage, our space in the way we wish to express ourselves on stage. And then um, I'm getting older. I see too many women in unhappy in their bodies. Rhinestones have the limitations with that a bit. And um, there's a bit of a toxic dialogue, especially with social media, that's kind of based on our surface, you know, constantly mm-hmm. being called to mask ourselves. And, you know, there's work to do on this. As far as I'm concerned, the gloves are off. You know, I've got work to do. <laughs> or the satin gloves are off, I should say. But yes, I will still be shaking my tail feather aging like a fine wine i should hope but yes you will see me around europe during this summer as well on stage
0: oh that is fantastic to hear. just one more time i just want to say thank you to immodesty blaze we will be following the ongoing evolution of your phenomenal career it has been such an honor to interview you and thank you for spending time with us right here on what's the tease
1: oh well thank you for such kind words and it's been absolutely delightful to speak to you really and hear your your wisdom and your comments as well thank you thank you so much